I'm Alyssa. I'm an alcoholic. So my sobriety date is October 31st, 2022. Um, And here I am to tell you guys about what it was like, what happened, and what things are like now. Um, I do find it ironic here, standing up in front of you guys, because the last time I was in front of this many people, I was definitely singing karaoke. And it was in a bar after too many drinks. And by the fourth song, people didn't want to hear me anymore. So I can promise you that I hope this one will be different. Um, last time I spoke as well probably was when I was back when I was 18. And I'll kind of fill you guys in on that when I tell you my story. Um, I always believed that when I was drinking that if I could face my past demons and tell my story to everyone, then that somehow I could find healing from past trauma that I had growing up. But I was too afraid to do that, and I didn't have the tools to be able to cope with that healing process. And the beauty of AA is that they are our tools. There are different practices that I can put into practice so that I can start to heal and move forward. Um, and my story is basically a story of choice and redefining what choice is. Um, I had my choice taken away when I was young. Um, and was kind of told what it meant, what God's will meant for me. Um, And now I'm learning to re-embrace the gift of free will that God has given me. So I grew up in Cary, North Carolina, born and raised. Um, I grew up over on Bond Lake, 21 years in the same house. I have a younger brother and sister and an older half-brother and sister. A younger brother and sister, I was always the oldest because my half-siblings didn't live with us. I played basketball my whole entire life, and our childhood was fun. Um, I got along with my siblings a lot. We were always outside playing. Uh, But we also had different things that we did. So my dad was extremely religious, and his story started back in 1980s. He refound God through apparition sites. An apparition site is basically where God comes down and appears to somebody and gives gives them that person a message and then it's shared with a bunch of people. And so his first obsession was with Fatima. Um, and then after that it was Conyers, Georgia. And then after that it was something called Holy Love. And at five years old he was taking me, a little five-year-old girl, to this apparition site and kneeling me down in front of a statue of Mary and taking pictures. And any random weird thing that showed up in the picture was a spiritual experience of God showing up in the picture. Uh, So my life growing up was very centered around any religious experience and spiritual experience. He would take us to Senecals every single week. A Senecal is a prayer group that comes together, and you sit down for an hour, and you pray the rosary, and then you talk about religious things. We went to a holy hour every, every week. So as a very young kid, I was asked to sit for an hour in front of a box in a church and pray to God. Um, And the only excitement that I had after that was the fact that we got donuts to be able to have the next morning. So that was cool. Uh, On top of that, we went to daily mass. My dad would drop us off late at school because that was more important for us to be able to go to church. And every holiday was celebrated um, very religiously. Uh, But my dad was also a bit emotionally abusive. And he would put all this pressure on us, especially me as the oldest child, to be, his words were, be perfect as our Heavenly Father's perfect. And so I lived my life trying to fulfill that. Uh, He continued on with his holy love obsession, which is a place in Ohio, uh, and 
at the age of nine years old, I found a group called Regnum Christi. Uh, Regnum Christi means Kingdom of God, or Kingdom of Christ, sorry, in Latin. And it starts by developing young girls and boys to be leaders of tomorrow. So at the age of 10, I joined a group called Challenge. And in Challenge, we met weekly, we would go to camps, it was a lot of fun. They know how to work with young kids uh, to get you excited about God, about um, trying to be a better person. And it really, it really was, there was a lot of positive benefits from it. Uh, there was a lot of good things that really taught me how to be a uh, young leader, and especially in my group of friends. And I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to be good. I wanted to make my dad happy. I wanted to be a part of this group uh, and show people that I could be a leader and do the right thing, basically. Um, so at 10 years old, I'm in this group, and I think one of my earliest memories is we were playing a game, and I was very competitive. And I yelled at the other team when we started a game saying, we're going to beat you guys. We're going to win. And I was immediately admonished and told, no, that's not the way we talk to other people. We want to encourage everybody to treat each other with respect, right? And encourage them, like, no, we're not going to be the ones. You're not going down, that kind of thing. Uh, and that stuck with me for years and years and years as I need to approach things differently. I need to make sure I'm always coming across as accepting and open and, things, and all that kind of thing. Um, so continued on with this group for years. Uh, we met weekly. When I was 14 years old, we had a camp that I went to, and I was a leader there. So I had a group of 10, 11, 12-year-olds, probably about 9 or 10 of them, that were under me, and I was in charge of leading them around the camp and going to the different activities. And I was in charge of giving talks at different times, different spiritual talks. We'd go over different Bible verses or different topics about leadership uh, in order to encourage the young girls. Um, and then we'd lead activities and games. It was a lot of fun. People, the kids really enjoyed it, and I did too. And I loved being that leader uh, for that group. At the end of that camp, it was a week-long camp, I was pulled aside by one of the women who leads it. And these women are called consecrated women. They had given their lives to God, but they were women who took promises, not vows. Um, what that means is it's not as binding, basically. So they're giving their lives to God, but they're not... You know, they're not like married. So one of these women pulled me aside and basically told me, she said, I see a lot of promise in you, and I think you would thrive at this school in Rhode Island. Uh, this was a school that was grooming girls to become more consecrated women. And it was a high school. It was in Rhode Island, teeny tiny place, secluded from everywhere else. But it was where all these women that I had looked up to at that young age went in order to become these people that I wanted to be as well. And somebody singling me out and making me feel special, making me feel like I belong somewhere, was enough for me to put that in my head and say, okay, this is what I need to do. So I went to my parents and I said, I want to go to school. So I was in eighth grade at that point. And it's a lot of money to go to schools like that. My parents didn't have money like that. But they said, if you're still determined and you know that this is what, as they said it, God wants you to do, then when you're a sophomore, we'll let you go to school. So all of my freshman year, I went to Cardinal Gibbons out in Raleigh, and I played basketball there, had a 
weight year. My, a lot of my friends were there that I'd grown up with. Um, but I was ready. I was ready to go to the school. I still knew in my heart that this is where I was supposed to be. I had been called. Um, it was supposed to be my mission in life. And at the end of the year, I said, yep, this is what I want to do. And my parents said, okay, we'll let you go. Um, all this time, it's not like it went a whole year of me talking to this one consecrated woman, and then a year later, I'm suddenly leaving. It was throughout that whole year, I'm still having meetings. I'm having spiritual direction with one of the consecrated women on a regular basis. So it's constant grooming of um, becoming this woman that I'm supposed to be, this woman I'm called to be. And a lot of these are positive aspects. There's elements that come later that were not so positive. So when I went off to this school, that's when things kind of changed and my eyes were open to what the group really was. Now this group was founded by a man called Marcel Maciel. He was a priest. Um, he was founded in 1941. And he was revered as a saint within this group. Uh, his words were spoken. He wrote letters to the group and they were read every single night. We reflected on them. We would study them. We would talk about him. We called him Nuestro Padre, which is our father in Spanish as an endearing term. Um, but the life of what we, were, we called ourselves the PCs, it was short for pre-candidates, um, and those are candidates to become consecrated. We, our life was very rigid, very regimented. So we would wake up super early. The schedule, there was no break in the schedule. There was no free time uh, between doing classes, between housework. We lived a life of silence. When I wasn't actively in classes or um, we weren't out playing sports, uh, we had a specific sports time, we basically were living our lives in silence and that was expected. And it was, it was everybody lived it and followed it because God's always watching. It was God's will for us. And so God's will was framed for me at that young age as the schedule, as what the consecrated woman told us to do and where we should be. So my choice was completely gone at that point. And it wasn't really me giving my will to God. It was me giving my will to these women who were classifying what God's will was. And so I had a very warped understanding and perception of what all of that was. And I lost the ability to have any choices. I felt like I was in a box. Uh, I had a hard time putting that into words because I wanted to be there still too. I thought that this was the rest of my life. I thought that forever I was going to be part of this organization, uh, that this was my mission, that I was called to it, that I was supposed to be helping other young women. Um, and halfway through the year, I developed severe upper back pain. That was debilitating. I could no longer play sports and run. Um, I couldn't kneel like we were supposed to kneel. Uh, I couldn't participate like I needed to as a 15-year-old girl in just everyday activities. And they took me to the doctor, and the doctor said I had weak muscles. Now, this is somebody who grew up playing basketball her whole life, who was very athletic, and suddenly they don't have an explanation for why I was suffering so much. And it was because of all this built-up, pent-up stress that was inside of me that I couldn't get out. And I didn't understand either, because it was all programmed into me. Um, at the end of my sophomore year there, my parents called. So... We had a family phone call that was every single week. It was on, for me, it was just Wednesday night. You got to talk to your family for 40 minutes, and that was it. I had a calling card that I was able to call. It was an old 
phone booth that was downstairs in the basement. There were four little booths, and each of us had a spot of time that you got to talk to your family once a week. I didn't have any other outside contact, had no internet access, no contact with the outside world. There a hurricane hit one time, and we didn't even know it. Um, but I was talking to my family that night, and they got on the phone, and they said, pack your stuff, we're coming to get you on Friday. So this is two days later, and this is a girl who's been very programmed within a group who's staying in this place. Um, just to give you a brief idea of it, we lived in two, there were two separate dorm rooms that had 40 bunk beds in there. And at six o'clock in the morning, one of the consecrated women would come walking down the hall in their heels, and they would scream, Christ our King, and we'd all scream, Thy kingdom come, and jump out of bed. And you start your day with a prayer, and then everybody ran off. You weren't allowed to talk in the dorms beyond that. We ran off to take our showers and then go to chapel. That was life. That was how it was every single morning. Um, and so for my parents to call and to say, we're coming to pick you up, pack your stuff, I was just shook. I didn't understand what was happening. This was what God wanted for me. How did they, how on earth could they be taking me away from my mission? Um, but I was also taught to be accepting and understanding that things changed. So this internal conflict started to happen of like, okay, so I still don't have a choice in this. I'm being pulled away again. So once I got to the school, I lost my choice. When I got home and pulled away from there, I lost my choice. The day that my dad came to pick me up, um, I wasn't allowed to say goodbye to my companions and classmates because it would upset them. And that was one of the big things is, we had to live a life of happiness, an exterior joy um, shown to all of our companions and, and, and whatnot. So I had to pack my stuff in secret. I had to put it into a suitcase and roll it down. We had this really long hallway, and we're in Rhode Island, so it got really cold. So we called it the Siberian hallway. It was lined with glass the whole way down. And I rolled my backpack, or my suitcase, all the way down that hallway while everybody was out for sports. And suddenly it started raining. And it was raining just over the school because you could look out and you could see past the clouds and it was sunny everywhere else. And I felt like in that moment that that was God crying for me because I wasn't allowed to show how I felt. I wasn't allowed to show that I was torn inside about what I was supposed to do and who I was supposed to be. And so I, and I, and I thank God for that, honestly, because I didn't understand the experience at the time. Um, I left that day and went back home and had to restart my life at home. Um, for years after that, I went to another Catholic high school. Um, I was determined to go back to that group later on, and then the news came out about the founder that he was very abusive, that he sexually abused um, young boys, he had multiple relationships outside of the organization, had a bunch of children that we didn't know about, and that all the words that he had promised and said to us were honestly a lot of lies. He was just a really good manipulator. And he was considered one of the best uh, fundraisers of all time within the Catholic Church because he was able to raise a lot of money. Um, so that shook my world again. And I went off to college. And it was another small Catholic college. Shocking, I know. Just stuck with the Catholic Church for a while. Um, and during that time, before I went to college, actually, is when I had my first drink. So it was after the news of Father Maciel came out. And I remember being with my best friends, and we got these strawberry daiquiris that were in the bottles. Awful. Absolutely awful. We, I think I drank six of them that night, and I remember laying in the bed trying to go to sleep, and my head was just spinning and spinning and spinning, and I was like, I don't know if it's the alcohol, I don't know if it's the sugar, but I hated it. I absolutely hated it. Um, 
And so I didn't really drink that much after that. I had that experience with alcohol at that time, and then I went off to the college, and we would drink every once in a while, but I was definitely that girl during college that was like, you had a glass of wine, you, you can't drive, don't drive. Like, we'll wait, or I'll drive you, or whoever didn't have even a glass of wine, don't, they'll drive you. Um, when I was a junior in college, I was out playing basketball, shooting hoops, and I finally admitted to myself something else that I was struggling with inside of myself, and that, that was that I was gay. And I finally said it out loud, and I said it to my friend, uh, my best friend who had a crush on at the time, and she responded, no, no, you're just confused. You're not. You couldn't be. And so there again, it was a, I finally kind of come to this decision, this choice of like, okay, I'm accepting who I am, but I wasn't accepted by the people that I told. And so I felt again this conflict inside. I left school after that after falling into like a major depression. And the conflict of my religious past, everything that had been programmed into me and who I was supposed to be, didn't match with my sexuality. And it definitely wasn't accepted by the people around me at that time. Um, I couldn't accept it within myself. I couldn't accept who I was and who God had created me because everything I had been taught growing up. And from there, I just kind of spiraled out. Um, I went to New York not long after that. Uh, I have an older half. My older half-brother lives up there, and my older half-sister. He's gay and was living with his partner, and I had the best time ever. We went out. We went drinking. We went to a bunch of clubs. I got to see some drag shows. We did some really cool flip things that I don't think I could ever do, some splits. And it was just the best experience. I felt like I was seen for the first time in a long time. Probably since that day that I was called out and said that I think you would thrive in that school. I think it was the first time that I really felt seen again. I was in a place and it was like once again having that feeling. Um, so I went home and immediately a month later I booked another trip to New York. And I was determined I was going to live there eventually. During, excuse me, during that trip, I uh, started dating somebody through a dating website, and when I got back, we ended up um, becoming girlfriend-girlfriends, and my drinking career began. So I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know to handle, how to handle my sexuality, how to handle my life. I had, at that point, completely given up on God, um, because that just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. So he's no longer part of my life, and now I'm trying to figure out who this new person is, who I'm supposed to be. Um, and my girlfriend liked to drink, so I liked to drink, and we drank a lot. <laughs> and we would go on trips, and we'd drink even more. Um, and that was the first time that I started drinking while I was driving. And I didn't have any issue with it, but I also didn't see the problem at that time. Um, we eventually broke up. It was... It was a very toxic relationship that I was in. I wasn't, she didn't want me to go and be part of anybody else's life. If I was ever anywhere, it was always, when are you coming home? What are we doing? Why are you leaving me? All these kinds of things. Um, and after we broke up, I moved back home and I was drinking a lot then too. I would started with a bottle of wine here or there. And it got to a point where my mom came into my room one day and looked under the bed and there were tons of bottles of wine. And I just didn't even realize what was happening. Like I didn't understand, like, I didn't see any problem with it, but I knew well enough to hide it from her because my parents didn't drink really when I was growing up. Um, that wasn't really part of our life. My dad would have a glass of wine, red wine because it was good for the heart, is what he said. 
And my mom just didn't really care about alcohol. If she had a glass of wine, she'd be super tipsy, and, so she, and it would give her a headache, so she chose not to do it. She still gets that way now. Um, so with that, there was a night after breaking up that I chose to drink and then get in the car and drive, and I got a DUI. Um, I was very ashamed and I got pulled over because I knew what I had done wasn't right. Um, I, the cops didn't even think that I was drunk at that point because of how polite I was. They're like, oh, you're going to be fine, you're going to be fine. And I appeared okay, I guess, um, but of course I wasn't. And I, was, I managed to stop drinking for a good six months after that. I did the whole class thing. Um, and I didn't think I had a problem. I just thought it was a fluke in the system. I was upset about my breakup, so I was drinking. Therefore, this happened. I eventually picked up the bottle again and started drinking, and it, and it was worse the next time. Um, it was, and it was getting to a point that my mom, because I was living at home, made me sign some papers that said that I would no longer drink in the house, otherwise she'd kick me out. But still then, I didn't see it as a problem. And I didn't, I just thought she doesn't like alcohol because she doesn't drink it herself. So that's why she doesn't want anybody to drink. Not that maybe I had an issue. Maybe I was struggling. No clue. Like that never even crossed my mind. So one day she went on a trip and I was home alone. And I was always considered very responsible. I took care of my younger siblings. I was the one who had to drive my sister to drug therapy in high school. Um, that's a whole other story. But... I was home alone and I decided to drink and I decided to drink and mix it with some, um, it was Ambien sleeping meds and I blacked out for 24 hours and I lost all of that time. I went into my work during that time, um, trying to fix things I guess while I was there. I left, I went home and suddenly I was supposed to be the one who picked my mom up from the airport the day that she was flying back. I forgot. And mom calls when she lands and says, are you on your way? And totally out of it, I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm on my way. And I get in a car and I drove out there. And I went through one of the lights close to the airport, and I don't even know what happened. I only had flashes of these things, but I ran over the sidewalk and I hit a pole. And I hit the pole down a little bit. I got out of the car to check the car. Somebody across the street stopped, looked at me, asked if I was okay. I said, yeah, I got back in the car, backed up, and went to the airport. I got there, picked my mom up, she took one look at me and knew something was wrong. So she had to switch spots and then she got in the seat and, and drove back home. Um, when we got home, she was upset. She was kind of mad because I was obviously not okay. There was something wrong and she couldn't tell what it was. She assumed that I was drinking, but I was definitely not myself, even if it had just been alcohol. Uh, and so we got into a big argument and I was feeling guilty as all get out for having drank because I wasn't supposed to drink in the house. I had signed papers after all. And having grown up and being very regimented, like breaking those kind of rules, like that's punishable in God's eyes. And even though I wasn't practicing, it was still in the back of my mind of like, I'm going to go to hell now. Uh, so it got really bad to a point that I was threatening to take my own life. Um, I'd been suicidal at a couple different points in my life. When I was at college and I was trying to embrace who I was, trying to understand my own sexuality, trying to just understand life in general. But this was, this was a bad time. And I, I threatened myself, I threatened my family, and I don't even remember it. I really, I don't even remember it. So I had the cops come and they took me off to the hospital. 
Now, being the um, self-aware young girl that I was at the time, I thought the best solution to get myself out of having to go to a psychiatric hospital was to explain myself and explain my story and tell the doctor exactly why I was behaving the way I was so that if I could show that if I knew what I was talking about and why I was behaving the way I was, then they'd be like, well, she doesn't need to go because she already understands it. Like, that's the purpose of the hospital. That's not true. Speak less. Don't speak so much because they sent me off to a hospital. And then I went to a hospital. I was there for, I don't know, five days, I think it was. It was my first introduction to AA while I was there. It was encouraged that we went um, to AA meetings that came into the hospital. And I thought, well, this is going to look good. And if I go to it, then they're going to let me go earlier. Um, so I'll go to it. And I did participate. And I remember being in the AA group and feeling really bad for everybody who's there for their struggles and thinking, this can really, I can apply these, these things to the rest of my life. Like, I don't have a problem drinking, but I can apply this to uh, how I handle life in general. Like, this, this is really good stuff. And I wrote some great notes, and I took that, and I left the place finally, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to put this into action when I get home. And when my mom came pick me up, we talked to her on the way. I was a changed woman, I'll tell you. Wasn't changed where I was going to stop drinking, because I didn't have a drinking problem. But I was changed enough to be able to change the things that I needed in my life to be able to get back on track. So I could kind of refigure everything out, um, take back control. Well, it didn't work because the problem was that I had an issue with alcohol. So as soon as I started picking up the drink again, it started to get worse. And then I moved locations. It wasn't because I had a drinking problem. It was because mom said, you're getting older, you need to get out of the house. So I left the house then. And then I just had the freedom to go and drink whenever because I didn't have that contract anymore that I had to live up to. I could drink whenever I wanted to at my own place. So that's where I was. I did that for a long time, a long time. Um, I eventually got to a point that I was starting to feel like drinking was a chore, and I didn't like that feeling. It was getting tiring, um, but I still don't see it as a problem. And I would stop here or there. I could do it for a little while, but it always came back to it. Oh, I was definitely the type of person who would take a drink, and then say, well, tomorrow I'm not going to drink, and then fall into that same pattern. And I think a lot of us have experience, right, where you're taking that drink, and you put everything off for the next day, and you say, well, I won't do it tomorrow because I'm going to handle this, this, and this, and the next day comes and you do the same exact thing. It's that insanity that we always talk about. So I was doing that for a long time, um, and here and there, I was able to quit. Well, I had one time, one, it was a year ago about, that... I tore my ACL um, for the third time. I tore my ACL quite a few times playing basketball. And this time, I went directly to my surgeon who had taken care of me for all my knee surgeries. She got me in really quick. And I went under anesthesia. Um, and apparently, it took a lot longer than it should have. And I was really proud of myself because going into that surgery, I hadn't had a drink for 24 hours. And that was something that was a challenge for me. But I thought, okay, if I, can't, if I don't drink for that 24 hours, then I'll be good to go for surgery. Well, I went into the surgery. Anesthesia took a really long time. When I woke up, I have this vague memory of being woken up after the surgery is over by the nurses. And they were drilling me. They were asking me, how much do you drink? Do you do drugs? And I, I didn't do any drugs, but I definitely drank, and I had lied about how much I drank per week. I said like three drinks a week instead of like the ten I drank every night. 
So I was a little bit more honest. I said like five drinks, or I, was, I think I said like two or three drinks a night, or for five days or something. So I was closer to honest, but I still wasn't completely honest, even in my completely out of my mind state. Um, and they just kept they kept drilling me and drilling me. And I remember just begging for medication because I was in pain. And then all of a sudden I'm back asleep. And when I woke up, I didn't even realize it happened because uh, I was it was so fuzzy for me. I went to sleep that night, and at night, I woke up, and I was a little disturbed. I was like, I feel like something weird happened. And they do this really cool thing now where with any of the health things, if you get surgery, you can read through the notes. Like, the doctors are required to take notes, and you can read all of them now. So I took the time that night to look at all the notes and read them, and I found some weird lettering in there that I didn't understand, so I looked it up, and it said, possible substance abuse issues. And I was like, oh, this did happen. And I just remember getting really feeling like filled with shame that somebody had found out what I was struggling with, that somebody knew, and that somebody was, a lot of it was, I was afraid of being judged. Uh, and it was that that kind of started the spiral of like, okay, so maybe I do have a problem because of the doctor seeing this, and then she did talk to my mom about it. She didn't talk to me. She talked to my mom about it and was like, I think your daughter has, has a substance abuse issue. She asked if I was doing drugs, if I, um, if I was drinking a lot. And they were very, very worried about me. Um, so after all that, this idea popped into my head. of like, maybe I do have an issue. Maybe I do need some help. Um, I was able to go without drinking for those two months after surgery. I didn't really have a choice. I was back at my mom's house and she has the rules and I couldn't walk or drive. So I had no way to get alcohol. Um, but it really, it started at that point. And it was April of last year. Um, I actually looked it up tonight. April 5th, I reached out to a friend on Facebook who I'd worked with for a long time. Um, and she had just gotten sober, or she had been sober then. I think it had been five years by that point. But we had worked together for nine years. She had posted something about being sober, and I reached out to her through Facebook, and I was like, I think I have a problem. Do you go to AA meetings? And she responded, yes, um, I do. I try to go as often as I can. And I basically said to her, I wrote to her um, this one message, and I said, anyway, you'd be able to help me or send me a link. I just don't even know where to start. I just know I need help, and I need to be held accountable somehow. I would love to go to a meeting with you. I feel weird about this all. And I think that's kind of key because it is a weird feeling when you start to recognize that you have a struggle, you, or you're, that there's something that's a little bit off with you. Like there, it is weird, it is scary. And that was the other thing that she, she wrote back and was like, yes, um, you pick a time and a place, I'll come with you. And my next response was, I'm really scared. And that, and that was it. A lot of my life was this life of living in fear. Um, but we went to that meeting, and that meeting was at the annex, in that little building, um, sat in the back. And it was very, I think it was very hot that day. Yeah, it was the middle of the summer. It was like really hot. Um, I remember the people who were sitting in there. I kind of remember the conversation that we had. I remember being really nervous. And my friend turned to me and looked at me and said, have you looked at any of the literature yet? I said, literature? I don't know what you're talking about. She introduced me to the big book. And that night, um, I met Julia, and Julia was talking about the grapevine. And I took my home, first grapevine home. I didn't have a big book yet, so I took the grapevine home, and I read that grapevine every single night for that first week. 
And that grapevine, I was like, wow, I really relate to this, and I really hate that I relate to this. Because I wasn't willing to admit that I was an alcoholic still. Uh, I went back to a meeting, and I wasn't ready to be done. I wasn't really ready. I even remember, I'm very open with my boss at work. We're close friends, and I had told her I was going to an AA meeting. And she's like, do you think you're an alcoholic? I was like, no, I don't think I'm an alcoholic, but I do think I need some help. And... I continued, and all of a sudden I picked up, I ended up going to a friend's house, and she offered me a glass of wine, I had a glass of wine, and guess what? I couldn't say no to the next ones. And by the end of that next week, I had, I even took a picture of it, I had boxes, wine boxes, littered on my apartment floor from all the wine that I had consumed in that week. I was back to the same situation of waking up in the morning, having to have that drink in order to be able to function during the day. And I realized, I looked at my dog, like for probably the 150th time, and said, Mom needs help. I know I need help. And telling him I'm sorry for who I was, who I was, and how I wasn't able to be that person that I felt like I should be. Um, and so I came back. I ended up coming back. And I think that's kind of the big piece, right? It's coming back to each meeting, always showing up. Um, what I learned from AA and what I have so far, I have so much to learn still. I'm still very new. Um, I came back. My last drink was June 16th, and I have not had another drink since then. Um, however, during that time, I did get a sponsor. Um, I joined this home group. This home group has been amazing to me. Um, I found my friends, people I call my family now. Um, and one of the first meetings I went to, I remember it was after I'd had that next drink, I remember people speaking up, and one of the things, it was actually Charles in our meeting, he spoke up and he talked about just keeping it simple. And I just didn't get that. I was like, I love that concept, but how do you do things simply? Like, my whole life had been so complicated. Being programmed the way that I was, having to live perfect as God's Heavenly Father is perfect, all of that, it's not simple the way that it was shown to me. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't grasp or understand, like, how can I go about life and cope with everything without a crutch, without alcohol is that thing. How do I, I was so used to avoiding every single thing. And hearing somebody just say the word simple was enough for me at that point to be like, okay, maybe I'll try to give this a try. Um, and it was that night that I met um, my sponsor who I didn't understand how to get a sponsor. I didn't know what a home group was. I didn't know any of these things. And my home group is the one that spoke to me and said, this is what this is. This is what you should do, and gave me suggestions. And the first person who asked, who told me that you should get a sponsor before you leave, the last person I asked to be my sponsor, because they, that person said that if you don't do that now, then you're more likely to drink. And I was like, well, I can't do that, so I got to figure this out. So I got that sponsor, and I started on the steps. We met regularly at the beginning every week, um, and then I got on my fourth step, and I got stuck. And I got stuck because I was choosing to put a different substance in my body. Um, at that time, just to be honest, it was Kratom, and it was an energy source for me that I decided to use um, at the time. I didn't have another drink, but I was still not living that fully free life that we can find within Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and when I did my fifth step, I was honest with my sponsor and chose to choose a different sobriety date, which was then Halloween, 
which is really kind of a cool date, if I'm being honest. Um, but I think what's really helped is that since then, it is all about being simple. It is about following a program that's already been laid out. I don't know the whole big book. I haven't read the whole thing yet. Um, I'm still learning different things. Every time I reread a passage, it's like I'm reading it for the first time, it feels like, because I'm still so new with a lot of these things. But every time I read it, there's a new message in there, something that for some reason I'm supposed to hear that day. Uh, and I have to say that those first probably three or four months when I wasn't totally free, um, while I was free from alcohol, I wasn't free because I wasn't giving 100%. I wasn't doing and following all of the suggestions that were laid out to me. Um, the suggestions that I did follow, things like calling people, talking to them on the phone. I was able to build those relationships. That is hard. It is hard to pick up the phone when you are so used to hiding behind text or hiding behind a computer or you're sitting in your house alone just drinking alcohol by yourself and trying to avoid the world. It's hard to pick up the phone and talk to somebody. But it was so amazing to be part of a group that's just willing to answer you and talk with you and understands that life, there are struggles and that we're all kind of just kind of doing this together, right? We're trying to figure it all out. So a lot of that was taking those suggestions being part of the home group and being part of service activities. Um, when I'm here, I don't typically get here super early. I try to, to just build community, but I'll stay after and try to help clean up, things like that. I think one of the biggest things that was recommended to me, especially when I'm struggling, is really trying to hand things over to God and then helping somebody else. Now, that was kind of hard at the beginning. So I stopped with my relationship for God, with God during that period of time um, that I was drinking because I couldn't reconcile what that meant. I didn't understand how I could fit God back into my life um, now that I had new sexuality, now that, um, now that I just was a different person in a sense. I was drinking and I was just not able to fit God into that kind of world and that realm. Uh, and so when I joined AA, I had this kind of excitement inside of me of like, I remembered what it felt like to have an actual relationship with God that I wanted, but I didn't know how to do it yet. And I didn't understand like, how, how does that look outside of all that was programmed inside of me? How do I build a relationship with somebody that I already have a definition for? Because that one, honestly, it triggers me. It gives me some PTSD and I have a hard time with it. I can't go back to that same idea. I've had to reframe what it means to have a relationship with God. And it has not been easy. Even in those first months, I would read different parts of the book. I would try to pray at different times. And being honest, I would wake up. I wouldn't pray right when I woke up. I'd get to work and I'd be like, oh man, this is going to be a hard day. And then I'd say, hey, God, help me. And that was pretty much it. And I thought I was kind of doing it. I wasn't. And over time, it got more and more painful, honestly. I just, I was struggling each day. And the word I used was I felt unsettled. I just felt unsettled. I didn't feel at peace. I felt like all these great things I'm learning in AA, all these things that I'm seeing the people around me put into action and the joy that they have, I was like, I'm not feeling that yet. I don't know why I'm not feeling that yet. I don't know why I feel so unsettled. I don't know why I can't do this at work. I can do it when I come to AA. I can do it around my family, but I can't do it at work. And that was the place I was spending most of my time. Um, so I met with my sponsor, it was just a week ago, and we talked about meditation um, and doing something that's very hard for me. I like to wake up and I like to stay in my bed where it's warm and I like to look at social media when I wake up. 
it's just a lot more enjoyable and it's selfish so what I've done now is I'm trying to wake up and pray first for me I can't kneel kneeling brings back too much I spent a lot of time on my knees growing up um, and I've hurt my knees many times many many times quite a few surgeries so being on my knees is a little bit challenging but I found a different position that I can be in when I'm praying and talking to God that allows me to sit there and just be calm but what I was missing, and I think this is the part that I didn't fully understand and grasp, is the idea of doing a 10th step throughout the day. And that idea of looking at yourself. Where are you being selfish? Where are you being dishonest? Where are your resentments? Um, and where are you fearful? What are you afraid of during that day? For me, being able to look at that, analyze it, break it down, and put a name to it, and then offer it to God, was the, the step that I was missing. I needed that in order to start out my day. So if I immediately woke up and I had these feelings of angst about something, I was able to hand it over and then sit there quietly and talk to God. Um, and in doing that, it's only been seven days. It takes longer than that to make a change, and I hope to keep doing it. But so far, I have seen a significant difference. And I've seen a significant difference throughout my day because it's something that I can always turn back to. It just reminds me of these tools like how grateful I am and how blessed I feel to have found this group and to have found a home group, to have found AA, to have found um, these principles in order to be able to put them into practice. Because now I do have a choice, and I'm realizing that I have a choice. I'm able to do these things, and I can reframe what God's will means for me. I can reframe what each day looks like, um, and I'm just grateful to be part of this group. That's all I got.